Welcome to Across Acoustics, the official podcast of the Acoustical Society of America's Publications Office. On this podcast, we will highlight research from our four publications. I'm your host, Kat Setzer, Editorial Associate for the ASA. In today's episode, we'll be talking to Valerie Eddington and Laura Klepper, who performed this research while at St. Mary's College and are now at University of New Hampshire. They are co-authors on the article Acoustic Behavior in the North Short-Tailed Shrew, Blurina Gravicata, Ultrasonic Production in a Novel Environment, which published in the July 2023 issue of JAZA and was also featured in an AIP publishing sidelight. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me today, Valerie and Laura. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you, Kat. So first, can you tell us a bit about your research backgrounds? Yeah, I can uh, start out. So my background prior to starting graduate school is mainly in animal bioacoustics and behavior. This paper specifically is a result of the first ever research project I worked on as an undergraduate when I was a sophomore in college. But since then, as an undergraduate, I did research on the alarm calling behavior of fox squirrels. And I also did some behavioral work with drafts. And now as a graduate student, I've shifted gears a little bit, and now I'm focusing more on acoustic ecology and population ecology, and I'm looking to develop models to monitor really large aggregations of colonial seabirds and bats using different acoustic methods. That's fun. Uh, In my background, so I received my PhD from the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And I studied odontocete echolocation. So I studied the echolocation of whales and dolphins. And then I shifted gears in my postdoc at Brown University, where I studied bat biosonar. And then I continued my research with biosonar of bats and dolphins when I began working as a professor and have over the years learned to expand to lots of different animals along the way. Including the shrew. So most people think about echolocation in terms of bats and dolphins, like you were mentioning, but other animals use it as well. Can you give us a little background on terrestrial mammal echolocation? Absolutely. So echolocation in its true sense, this is where it gets a little, we'll say murky a little bit in the literature because there's a fine distinction between, well, actually not so fine distinction between echo (laughs) echo ranging, which is using sound to detect objects in an environment, which is something that actually a lot of different animals are capable of doing. I'll come back to that in a second, but there's a fine distinction between echo ranging versus echolocation. So bats and dolphins have been studied for decades and decades and decades, and they, we know they have a true form of echolocation. We know that based on kind of their, their fine spatial resolution and how well they're able to detect objects. You know, they can detect, a bat can detect if an insect is fluttering. Some whales and dolphins can even detect what species of a fish it is from the echo signature. So we know that bats and dolphins have a really fine scale echolocation system. But we also are beginning to learn about other species that use ultrasonic signals to detect objects in their environment, which, because it has not been as well studied as often as referred to as echo ranging, because we don't fully understand the capabilities of their echo location or echo ranging systems. So for example, there are some bird species that live in caves, dark caves, that use acoustic signals to navigate. These are cave birds, oil birds, cave swiftlets. There's also been evidence of shrews using ultrasonic signals for navigation, as well as even most recently, just a few years ago, a really nice comprehensive study came out showing 
a group of animals called the soft bird tree mice that use ultrasonic signals to navigate their environment. So it's, it's exciting because I think we're still starting to understand are still continuing to understand how animals are using sound to potentially navigate their environment. And, you know, as more and more animals use ultrasonic signals, I think that we might find more species using ultrasonic signals to navigate their environment. So what are the characteristics of vocalizations that are used for echolocation? Yeah, so there are three main characteristics that we look for in a vocalization that would signal to us that maybe this animal is producing these for echolocation or echo orientation or echo ranging purposes. So the first one is we expect them to be very short in duration, either micro or milliseconds in duration. So incredibly short calls. We also expect these calls to be ultrasonic or components of the call to be ultrasonic, meaning above the human range of hearing. So humans hear anywhere in the frequency range from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz, although that's a little high for most people. And frequency is just the pitch of hearing. So we think of high pitch noises. Those are high frequency noises. And so we expect echolocation or echo orientation calls to have these ultrasonic components because that helps these signals travel much faster through the environment and get back to that sender a lot faster so they can get that information quickly. Whereas with a call that's used for communication, for example, we might expect that to be a lot lower in frequency so that they can travel further distances. And lastly, we would expect these calls to be broadband, so have energy consisting in a really large range of frequencies rather than a narrow band of frequencies. Okay, got it. So why did you decide to look at the northern short-tailed shrew? Yeah, so we wanted to do this study, first of all, because the echolocation hypothesis for shrews has been up for debate in the literature for decades now, really. And recently, in 2021, there was a paper published that was kind of questioning whether these vocalizations are even vocalizations produced by the animal or if they're just byproducts of locomotion while the animals are maneuvering an environment. And so that kind of inspired us to do this study to begin with. But specifically, we chose the northern short-tailed shrew because we had them right in our backyard at St. Mary's and it was easy. I say that in quotation marks because it's really not that easy to trap a shrew, but they were available to us. So we set out traps in the college woods area at St. Mary's College and we, we trapped some shrews as best we could to uh, try and make our own conclusions about shrews and the ultrasonic vocalizations they, they produce. Okay. Well, and so that leads into a story that you were telling us as we were preparing for this episode. And you mentioned that you had some trouble getting the shrews. So what happened? Oh, what didn't happen? (laughs) Um, (laughs) First of all, the first time around when we were working on this part of the project, I think there was a little bit better luck. We were, although we were only able to catch four individuals, but later on as part of my senior thesis, we were hoping to continue this work. So we took to the the grass and woods again to try and trap more shrews to to expand on this research and didn't have the same luck. I don't know if you can call catching four shrews luck because that's still a really small sample size, but regardless, we were not able to catch any shrews our second time around. We had a lot of deer and raccoons and other critters that were just getting to our traps first. The raccoons were literally ripping these metal traps apart oh. to get the goodies inside 
we tried doing pit traps. So we spent, you know, a few hours a day digging holes in 90 degree Indiana summer heat, which really wasn't too bad. I'm just giving Laura a hard time um, (laughs) to try and uh, catch these animals. But we uh, did not have success the second time around. So these are certainly tricky to catch, at least where we were trying to catch them. And I'm going to interrupt for a second, just because I have to give credit to the team that attempted to catch these shrews, because Valerie is not really giving full justice to the the story and the incredible effort that these students went through. It was a team of Valerie and two other students who, you know, every day, twice a day, basically, were outside trying to set new traps and dig new traps and they were in, you know, waist high poison ivy, full sun, and day after day after day. And I think when I finally said to them, y'all, I think we need to call it. I think <laughs> we're just not getting any shrews this summer. The look on their face was such a relief. And I think it was just a few days shortly after I was going for a run. And what did I nearly step on with my foot? It was a dead shrew on the sidewalk. And I said... <laughs> We've been foiled by these shrews, man. The taming of the shrews did not happen in the summer of, uh, uh, what was it, 2020, I think, Valerie? 2021. That's what it was. I'm going to blame it on the pandemic. Yeah, they were, you know, they were um, social distancing as well. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a bit about the setup for analyzing their actual vocalizations. Yeah, so after we were successful in trapping a shrew, we would bring it into the lab where we had our experimental chambers set up for these recording sessions. We recorded each shrew for two 10-minute recording periods, and we did this in just an empty plastic container. Prior to recording, we withheld food for an hour to induce exploratory behavior and hopefully get them to produce more of these vocalizations as if they were foraging, for example. And so we recorded ultrasonic acoustic recordings during this time, as well as video recordings that looked down on the shrew so that we could see the motion of their head if they were moving it back and forth, doing what we call scanning behavior, or simply if they were moving or if they were not moving. Okay, cool. So then you had these recordings of the shrew vocalization. So how do you assess what the shrews were actually using them for? Yeah. So once we had those recordings, we looked at three main things. The first thing we did was just extract all of the ultrasonic clicks we could find present in the recordings, and we called these click trains. And then from these time periods where they were emitting these click trains, we looked back at that video and we looked at their behavior while they were producing these clicks to see if they were moving, if they weren't moving. And we also looked to see if they were exhibiting any head scanning behavior, which is something we see commonly in other echolocating animals like bats. They do this while they're emitting these ultrasonic clicks. So we looked at that. And then lastly, we pulled out what we considered to be really high quality clicks. So these are clicks that had a high signal to noise ratio, meaning that they were a certain degree louder than the environment. And so these clicks were more likely to be a true example of what the calls looked like because they were likely produced in close proximity to that microphone that we had set up to record these vocalizations. And with those high quality calls, we looked to see what the characteristics were. So again, we were looking, are they broadband? Are they short in duration? And do they have peak frequencies in the ultrasonic range? 
So what did you end up learning about true vocalizations? Yeah, we learned that shrews produce ultrasonic clicks when they're moving and when they're not moving. So they are not simply a byproduct of locomotion. These are vocalizations the animals are producing. And we also learned that when they're producing these clicks, they're often exhibiting that head scanning behavior I mentioned. And then importantly, we found out that these are short duration broadband clicks that have peak frequencies in the ultrasonic range, like we see in other echolocating or echo-orienting animals. Okay. So they may possibly echolocate. Yeah. (laughs) But unclear. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So do you have any future plans related to shrew vocalization research? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we did attempt to continue this research as part of my senior thesis in my undergrad in 2021, but we were very unsuccessful in our trapping effort that time around. But we do have the experimental chambers for the next part of this experiment ready to go. So if there is ever a really eager undergraduate at the University of New Hampshire who wants to come tackle this project and try and trap some shrews, I would love to continue it. I just, I do not plan to continue as part of my graduate work. (laughs) You don't want to spend all of your time digging in holes. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd be happy to help someone else do it. That is fair. Understandable. So, you know, I have to say, I do admire your determination and perseverance when trying to capture the shrews for your research. And now we may know that possibly those shrews in our yards could be echolocating, or it seems like they might be. So thank you again for taking the time to speak with me. And I wish you the best of luck in your future shrew and non-shrew related research. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Across Acoustics. If you'd like to hear more interviews from our authors about their research, please subscribe and find us on your preferred podcast platform.